This is our sermon from when we were live on Palm Sunday. It had been a rough week, Judas thought as he hurried out, the sound of a slamming door reverberating through the night, closing off the muttering voices he had left behind in the upper room. He pulled his cloak tighter to protect against the chill, or maybe to hide his face as he hurried through the empty streets towards the temple. Had it really only been days earlier that these streets were alive with shouts and whispers, joy-filled faces and leaping children? The king was here. The Messiah had come. Sure, there were some who had held back, mostly from the older generation who had seen this scene play out more than once in their days. But even amongst the gray hairs, the buzz felt different this time, their alert eyes at odds with the studied nonchalance of their posture. Judas, of course, had had a front-row view of the proceedings, walking with head held high and chest puffed out just to the left of the donkey that carried Jesus, leading the chants of Hosanna that sprang out from the crowds, his sandals cushioned by the cloaks that had been spread along the road into Jerusalem, his eyes drinking in the hope written across every face he could see. And he could see a lot of faces. It seemed like the whole city, the whole province, was cheering and staring and waving palm branches in the air. And why not? The Messiah was here at last. The conquering king had arrived, and Yahweh's chosen one would surely have cleared Rome out by the time of the Passover festival at the end of the week. Maybe those Roman crosses could be reappropriated to hold a few of their leaders for once. You had to admire Jesus' timing. It was no surprise that the procession went from the gates of the city straight to the temple. The action, Judas was sure, was about to begin. He hadn't been wrong, But the action that ensued was not quite what he had been expecting either. Instead of clashing swords with Roman legions, or even better, God dealing with them in some more spectacular fashion, Jesus had directed his fury at the people changing money into local currency and then selling animals for the sacrifices that Passover week held. The clatter of coins across the pavement and the flutter of wings inside toppled cages were not the sounds Judas had been hoping for. The anger directed at them by the temple leaders... Did Jesus really have to interrupt the normal workings of the temple on this week of all weeks? Well, it didn't seem a wise way for the Messiah to rally the nation for the coming war. Judas had a lot to ponder that night as the snores of his fellow disciples cut through the darkness. The next morning, things got worse. Jesus' fury was again ignited, this time as they approached the city. The group passed a fig tree. And they all looked at each other in curiosity as Jesus went to inspect the tree, carefully looking under each of its leaves as if hoping to find some fruit. Surely, Judas had thought to himself, Jesus knows that no fig tree would have fruit on it so early in the spring. They did have fig trees, even in Nazareth, he was pretty sure. But just as he was thinking this, Jesus had straightened up, reached out his hand, and cursed the tree. It withered immediately before their eyes like the effects of a many years drought had all happened at once, and they were left staring at a gray, slumping trunk, where a seemingly thriving tree had stood moments before. Judas probably wouldn't have minded so much, would have chalked it up to the stress of the moment, if it hadn't been that not too far from this very spot the day before, Jesus had started weeping over Jerusalem, saying something about it being too late for peace for the city. Judas hadn't been able to hear all of what Jesus had been muttering and had figured maybe it was Jesus being a bit too tender-hearted towards the enemy they were soon going to slaughter, as Jesus too often was in Judas's estimation. No sense wasting tears on Roman scum. But the fig tree, well, that complicated things. No one in Israel used the fig tree as a symbol for Rome, for the empire. The fig tree was Israel itself. At least that's how it had showed up in the stories he'd been told by his mother as a child. A thriving fig tree 
a thriving people of God. The Messiah was supposed to restore the health of Israel's fig tree, not wither it away to a husk. But maybe he was overthinking things, surely. Judas had held on to that hope for as long as he could, but tonight he could hold on no longer. The next days had dragged on, with Judas only half listening to what Jesus was babbling on about. He did repeat himself an awful lot, this rabbi, and three years is a long time to hear the same parables on repeat in every village in Galilee. The confrontation with Rome Judas was waiting for didn't come, day after day, nothing. And without that, what was the point of all this? The Messiah drives out Rome, restores the rightful prominence of Israel, a shining city on a hill for all the nations to see the power of Yahweh, Israel's God. That was the point, the goal, the ultimate destination, the whole reason for a Messiah to exist. Only then could all the promises God had made through the prophets of old come true. Only then would the peace and abundance and justice and freedom that Israel longed for arrive. And if Jesus wasn't going to get on with it, well, Judas couldn't just sit here waiting forever. The night arrived where they all sat down to the Passover meal, the meat and bread and wine and herbs and all the rest arrayed out in front of them with Jesus at the head of the table. Judas had expected this to be a triumphant meal after the work of the Messiah had been done, but that's not what had happened, not by a long shot. In fact, almost the very opposite had happened, something unthinkable and earth-shaking and terrible. Jesus had arisen and picked up the basin of water that had sat neglected inside the door. They hadn't the money for a servant to travel with them, after all, and none of the disciples were going to do the job, not with their places of honor almost within reach with the battle nearly won. And Jesus had stripped off his outer cloak like a slave. Judas averted his eyes at this point, not willing to look at the shame of it all, hoping that he was again misinterpreting what Jesus was doing. Surely it couldn't be. He heard Peter's voice, of course, ring out, You will never wash my feet. And Judas sighed. It was true, then. He had backed the wrong Messiah. Wasted three years on false hope. Followed a loser. Rome was not going anywhere, and Jesus was soon going to be dead. He barely heard as Jesus started talking about serving as if they had followed him all this way because they aspired to nothing more than slavery, like apparently he did. Judas aspired to more. And what of those hopes now? What was he going to do if Jesus was not a king at all, but no better than a slave, and Judas had followed him so long? His mind flew this way and that in search of a solution. He had to find a way out, a way to restore his honor and distance himself from this pathetic excuse for a Messiah who had been leading them astray all this time. A thought slithered into his mind, almost as if it had wriggled its way in through a side door somewhere. There was one way. If he were to hand Jesus over to the fate that was inevitably coming anyway— then no one would be able to dump Jesus' shame upon him. He could restore at least some of his standing in the community when they heard it was he who had put an end to it all. Yes, that would maybe just do it. He darted a glance towards Jesus, and his heart froze within his chest. The master, clothed again, was staring straight through him in that way he could sometimes, as if he knew. Jesus' arm was extended and a piece of bread was in it offered to Judas. Judas stared at the bread, motionless, breath frozen even in his lungs, eyes unable to lift back up to the face of the one he was going to betray. But his ears had no trouble hearing the words Jesus spoke to him, clearly, but with a hint of either sadness or disappointment. 
do quickly what you are going to do. It was like a spell broke, and Judas leaped from the table and fled into the night, the taste of bread weighing heavy on his tongue. Judas was one of the first, but certainly not the last, who was interested in Jesus primarily as a means to an end. He wanted Jesus plus, you might say. And as soon as he saw Jesus' real intentions, he fled into the night to betray what he saw as a false king. What we learn from Judas's story is that when we are primarily interested in what Jesus can do for us, we will find ourselves disappointed. And with that disappointment, we might give up on this following Jesus thing altogether. For Judas, it was Jesus plus power, Jesus plus freedom for Israel, Jesus plus getting rid of Rome. And if Jesus wasn't going to come through on those ends, then Judas would go looking for other means to accomplish what he saw as the main goals. I think it's safe to say all that based on the timing of Judas's exit right after Jesus has taken the role of a slave and talked about his coming death. For Judas, the goals weren't going to be accomplished. Time to back a different horse. For us, Jesus plus might take any number of forms. There are many who have used Jesus as a means to power through the centuries. That seems to be a recurring idol for us humans. Meredith in her Instagram work often points out the deficiency of expecting Jesus to be the means to the end of obedient good kids. Many expect Jesus to keep them and their loved ones safe and secure. And when disaster strikes, they find themselves confused why Jesus didn't hold up his end of the bargain. Why did God allow this to happen to me? One of the fundamental expectations of the gods throughout history is that they would provide for us and keep us safe. And what good is a God who can't come through on those things? Others see the main goal as personal fulfillment or happiness and expect Jesus to deliver on that for them. They see the promises that the Bible makes about life with God and they're drawn by their desire for peace or freedom or material security. And then when that peace seems elusive, they wonder whether Jesus was worth it at all. What makes all this so tricky to wrap our minds around is that Jesus does promise all those things, but that the way they arrive might not look the way we expect. Like how Jesus did set the people free from the power of Rome and the shadowy power of sin that lurked behind Rome, but it was on the other side of his death. That Jesus was a king, but one who paradoxically rules through service. Jesus does bring peace and security, but in the midst of disaster and suffering, not by protecting us from disaster and suffering. And more often than not, it isn't until the other side that we look back and see that God had been with us and had come through for us all along. But we only arrive at that place when we trust that Jesus, only Jesus, will be enough. And that if we trust just Jesus, Jesus, just for his sake, not for what he might give to us, that he won't let us down. We might get those things we wanted in some way or another. We might find that those things weren't really as important as we had thought, and that Jesus really was enough without them. I've been studying Exodus in preparation for a post-Easter series, and one interesting way that some have used Exodus in kind of an analogous way to what we're talking about here is to see Yahweh as a means to liberation for the oppressed. That liberation is the goal, and the story of the Exodus is only useful insofar as it helps in the cause of liberation. But I found an interesting thing in the story of the burning bush that I think applies here as well. God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, in the story that we all are familiar with, I'm sure, 
And Moses asks for more assurance. How can I be sure, Yahweh, that you will really be with me? That this all will actually work out? And God's response is, I think, fascinating. This is from Exodus 3, verses 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Yeah, he, and God said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The sign is something that will happen after Moses is trusted. You'll know it was safe to trust me when you have trusted me and gotten through to the other side. Then you'll see that I could be trusted all along. John Golden Gay, the Old Testament scholar, puts it like this. He will have a sign that God really is with him, though it is a sign that presupposes God's wicked sense of humor. He will see the sign that God is with him only when the exodus is all over. He will have to go through the crisis and the challenge on the basis of trust in God's promise to him. But when he gets back to Mount Horeb, along with the people, he will be able to look back and reflect, God said, I am going to do this, and it happened. This shows God did it. So, the invitation from the negative story of Judas and the positive one of Moses is for us to ask ourselves, is Jesus enough? Can we trust that Jesus will be with us and will be enough no matter what? Can we not use Jesus as a means to an end, but rather trust that his goodness will see that we have all we need? In our time of response We mirrored the progression of Judas from Palm Sunday to the foot washing to the Last Supper. We started by picking up a paper palm leaf and then reflecting for a few minutes on what it is we wanted from Jesus. Often the palm branches on Palm Sunday are positive symbols, but this year we kind of complicated them a little bit because the people waving those palm branches were waving them because they thought Jesus was going to deliver something for them and they ended up disappointed. So what is it that we want from Jesus? It could be a good thing. It probably is. For me, I would write something like significance on there. I want Jesus to give me a life that is important, that matters, that is influential. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. But if I feel like Jesus has failed me, if I don't get that sort of life, it might end up being a bad thing. I've told the story before of sitting in the giant auditorium at Willow Creek, listening to a thoroughly mediocre sermon from a guy about my age who got to stand up and give thoroughly mediocre sermons most weeks to tens of thousands of people. And I remember being so frustrated and discouraged, saying to God, why am I sitting here doing nothing? While this guy gets that level of platform and influence, I can do that better than him. And the words that came back to me from God that I sensed sitting in that dark auditorium were, I didn't call you to that. Nothing more. No, instead I called you to this even more important thing. No, and I guarantee what I called you to will be more satisfying. Just that's not what I have for you. And so I find myself from time to time in the position of Moses a bit, having to trust without any guarantees on the front end, continually having to return to the question, will it be enough if I just live faithfully as best I can and am never all that influential or significant? Will that be enough to just have Jesus in my insignificance? So I'd put something like that on my palm leaf. But I would invite you also to reflect on what you want from Jesus. Meredith likes to quote Emily P. Freeman, 
who says, you want what you want, whether you name it or not. And so we named it. We talked to God about that thing, those things, how important they are to you. And I would invite you also to ask for help in trusting that there will come a day when you can look back and see that Jesus either did that thing, did it in a different way than maybe you expected, or made it okay even so. I think our knee jerk is to nod and say, oh, of course Jesus is enough for me. I'm a good Christian. (laughs) But I hope we can practice naming our desires before God, the things we deeply want, and that at least some part of us would feel let down if Jesus didn't give them to us. So I'd invite you to reflect on that for a minute. What we did after that in our time of response was we brought up our palm branch to a pitcher of water and a towel that symbolized the foot washing that had crushed Judas's hopes for Jesus as a means to his ends. It's Dallas Willard, I think, who says that we should let our desires lead us to God. What we want from Jesus is, again, probably not bad. They're good things. But Jesus invites us to trust that the way we ultimately find the life we desire is through this person who died. So we left our palm branches and picked up a piece of bread and a cup of juice as a way of affirming that we wanted Jesus, only Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory that the person who has God and everything else has nothing more than the person who has God alone. That the person who has God and everything else has nothing more than the person who has God alone. So this Palm Sunday, we practiced trusting that that is true. That as we follow Jesus, just Jesus, he will faithfully give us all we need and more.